Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Godzilla, also known as Gojira, from 1954. Written by Takeo Murata, Ishiro Honda, and Shigeru Kayama, and directed by Ishiro Honda. There were two other creative minds involved, though, who are not credited, or at least not necessarily as writers. Tamayuki Tanaka, the producer of the film, came up with the original idea on a flight back from Indonesia after a planned co-production Studio Toho had in mind with Indonesian studio Perfini fell through due to anti-Japanese sentiment in Indonesia. This was less than a decade after the surrender of Japan to the Allied armies that ended World War II, and the shadow of the war still hung over pretty much the entire Pacific Ocean. Given its aggression during World War II, it's safe to say Japan had few friends at the time. It's also worth noting, just to place this fully into its historical context, that Japan had only regained full sovereignty two years previously with the Treaty of San Francisco, ending seven years of American occupation. But back to Tanaka, for now, because I gotta warn you, this is a highly political film and there's no way to avoid discussing the complex symbolism of Godzilla himself and the story surrounding him, he came up with an idea for a monster movie, combining Ray Harryhausen's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms with the then-recent Daigo Fukuryu Maru incident that was very much in the news and on the public's mind at the time. For those of you not familiar with this story, a group of Japanese fishermen on the vessel Daigo Fukuryu Maru, all civilian boats are named Maru in Japan, came back from a fishing trip contaminated with massive amounts of radioactive fallout. The United States denied any involvement, although they did send two scientists to insist in treating the fishermen, but it was later determined that fallout from a nuclear test at Bikini Atoll spread twice as far as American scientists anticipated and delivered a dangerous dose of contaminated ash to the Daigo Fukuyu crew. Almost all of them survived the initial exposure, but most of them died in the ensuing years of liver failure or cancer of one type or another so it's safe to say that the dangers of nuclear testing were more of a concrete and immediate concern for Tanaka than for Harryhausen, and that comes out in the finished film. To get approval from Toho and the executive producer overseeing the project, Iwao Mori, Tanaka had to demonstrate that everything he wanted to do was feasible, which is where our second great creative mind comes in, Eiji Tsuburaya. He was the special effects director on the film, but he also made a lot of creative decisions because ultimately he was the one who knew what could and couldn't be done on the budget and with the time they had available. For example, the entire invention of what came to be called suitmation, the creation of a latex suit built over a framework of wood and wire for an actor who would act on miniature sets, came about because Tsuburaya did the math and realized that Harryhausen-style stop-motion would take roughly seven years given the staffing and infrastructure he had at his disposal. Tanaka's rough concept was given to Shigeru Kayama, a science fiction writer already known for stories featuring cryptids and mutated sea life. Kayama fleshed it out into a 50-page story, which was then turned into a screenplay by Takeo Murata and director Ishiro Honda. 
The two men toned down some of the garishness in Kayama's work, wanting the movie to feel like a documentary rather than an outrageous mad scientist flick, and they also added the human interest material that takes up a lot of the middle third of the story. The name Gojira, which is a combination of Gorira for gorilla and Kujira for whale, was invented relatively late in the production. Until then, it was simply known as G. The coordination between Honda and Tsuburaya was tight on set, with Tsuburaya visiting Honda during shooting to see where actors were being placed and where space was being left for his composited work later, and Honda visiting Tsuburaya to see how the effect sequences were being filmed and what they would look like so he could coach actors on how to react to them. Shooting those scenes was difficult, by the way, because the latex suit was so heavy and hot that actor Haruo Nakajima could only wear it for about three minutes at a time before passing out. A few of his scenes were doubled by Katsumi Tsuzuka, but for the most part Nakajima just gutted his way through a grueling production. By the end, he'd lost 20 pounds from sweat. And let's not romanticize this. That's not a safe thing to put an actor through. I am aware that VFX artists today are put through some grueling hours, and I fully support their demand to unionize, and I'm very happy to hear that we're getting some good news on that front. But the same people saying, let's go back to practical effects because it's fairer and less exploitative, share stories like Nakajima's as if it was the good old days, rather than a dangerous working environment where someone fell over every five minutes from heat exhaustion. Thankfully, not every cast member had that kind of experience ahead of them. Akira Takarada, who plays Ogata, remained famous in Japan right up until his death in 2022. He appeared in almost 150 different productions, made plenty of appearances on talk shows and celebrity game shows, and even though very little of that made it over to America, he's still recognizable from his many kaiju films. He was in Mothra vs. Godzilla, Ibira, Horror of the Deep, King Kong Escapes, Latitude Zero, a film I remember blowing my eight-year-old mind as a kid when I caught it on television, as well as Godzilla Final Wars and even the 2014 Godzilla movie directed by Gareth Edwards. Momoko Kochi, who plays Emiko Yamane, didn't have quite that kind of career, but then again she also passed away much earlier. She acted almost up until her death in 1998, again mostly in films and television shows that weren't exported to America, but one of her final credits was a reprise of her role as Emiko in the movie Godzilla vs. Destoroya. I don't believe it was just archival footage either, although some archival footage from the 1954 movie was used in that film. It's hard to know without the movie at hand, and unfortunately very few of the Godzilla films turn up in half-price stores. Unfortunately, actor Akihiko Hirata, who plays Dr. Serizawa, passed away even earlier than Kochi. He died in 1984. But it was after a very long career full of hard work. As with the others, most of it stayed in his home country. You can tell when you look at the IMDb credits because there's no American translation of the titles. But he was in a lot of genre work, including Rodan, The Mysterians, The H-Man, Varan, King Kong vs. Godzilla, and again, Latitude Zero which was also directed by Ishiro Honda. The things you learn when you start digging around. The last major cast member, Takashi Shimura's Dr. Yamane, was already an established actor by the time Godzilla came along, with a resume that dates back to 1934 and includes such famous films as Rashomon, Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood, and Yojimbo. He was considered to be a part of Akira Kurosawa's so-called repertory company. 
He reprised the Yamane role for Godzilla Raids again, but for the most part he stuck to samurai movies and crime dramas until his death in 1982. And even though he's not in the 1954 Godzilla, I feel like I should mention Raymond Burr, who plays reporter Steve Martin in the 1956 American re-edit of the film. This version, called Godzilla King of the Monsters, inserts Burr into the narrative through creative re-editing and reshooting, turning it into the story of a reporter who's stopping off in Tokyo on his way to Cairo when he stumbles into the biggest news event of his career. Surprisingly, there's very little redubbing in the picture, despite the later reputation of American releases of kaiju films. Instead, Burr's character functions as a sort of translator and Greek chorus for the events of the movie. Also, it was Toho's efforts to brand the character for international audiences that turned Gojira into Godzilla, and not the 1956 re-edit. Since there's no L sound in the Japanese language, and the word was a portmanteau with no direct translation, Toho made the decision to turn the R sound into an L to reflect the gorilla portion of the name, and to use God to describe its awesome power. We will almost entirely be covering the original Japanese version for this podcast, Although the American re-edit is an interesting movie in its own right, it cuts out a lot of the most interesting subtext, and you know we're all about themes and analysis here at HPH. And with that in mind, let's dive in. We begin with the opening credits, starting with a stark logo and continuing with the list of cast and crew members as Godzilla's theme plays with increasingly bombastic force. It's a pretty bombastic theme to begin with, almost entirely horns, and it plays louder and more fortissimo as it goes on. Kind of like the approach of a 165-foot-high monster. When the credits end, we cut to a boat called the Eikomaru that's very similar to the Daigo Fukuryumaru, which is rocked by a bright flash and a roar of thunder so close to what that crew described that it's no wonder some critics thought of this film as distastefully exploiting a recent tragedy. The ship sinks, barely able to get off a distress signal before it goes down, and Ogata, a former military diver who now works for a salvage firm, is called in to meet with the Coast Guard as it was one of his ships that went down. This forces him to cancel a date with Emiko, his girlfriend, a character who will become more significant as the film progresses. He arrives just as a second ship, the Bingo Maru, arrives at the scene of the accident, but it's destroyed with the same inexplicable speed and apparently no survivors. More ships are dispatched, as well as helicopters, and three survivors are found clinging to a piece of one of the original ships, but before they can get them to land, the fishing boat that found them is itself destroyed. The Coast Guard offices are besieged by distraught relatives, but they don't have any information to give out. Whatever's happening, it's wrecking ships faster than the word can escape about what's wrecking them. Over on nearby Odo Island, though, a raft with one survivor of the fishing boat washes up on shore and although he's not in great shape, he manages to tell the others that quote-unquote it got them and their boat as well. Whatever it is, it also seems to have devoured all the fish in the area, as the local fishing boats return completely empty-handed. One older villager, played with a distinctively craggy frown by Kokuten Kodo, tells the others it must be Godzilla, but apparently this is a pretty common thing for him and he's readily ignored. Godzilla is a superstition among the older inhabitants of the island, a ferocious sea monster they once propitiated with human sacrifices. Now they just do a dance to honor the legend, and it sounds like the elderly fisherman is really pining for the good old days the way he describes sending a raft out into the ocean with a beautiful young woman on it. 
That evening, a hurricane strikes the island, doing massive damage and killing the poor unfortunate survivor of the fishing boat. This is not a kind movie in any sense of the word. But the devastation doesn't follow the pattern of a strong wind blowing in from the sea. Many buildings were crushed from overhead, almost as if something stepped on them, and I will once again invoke my reminder that it only seems obvious to us because we're looking back on this movie from the perspective of almost 70 years of sequels, remakes, rip-offs, and parodies. Of course Godzilla came through. But it's not a natural conclusion to jump to, especially given that there was also a huge storm that same night. It's also worth pointing out that the story structure of the original Godzilla follows an impossibly powerful menace that gradually approaches from the islands of the Pacific to threaten Japan itself. To Japanese audiences of the time, who lived through World War II and who had direct and immediate knowledge of America's island-hopping approach to taking territory back from the Japanese military, this would have felt like a clear and direct parallel to their experiences of wartime. Godzilla is a metaphor for the threat of nuclear weaponry, of course, but he's also a metaphor for the way that America came to the shores of Japan, forced its surrender, and stomped all over doing whatever it wanted while the Japanese people were helpless to stop it. Obviously, that's a self-serving mythologization of the war, because it's not like Japan was an innocent victim of circumstances, but it's always worth remembering that there are in every war people who don't agree with their nation's politics and who suffer all the same, and it's worth analyzing a Japanese movie from the perspective of the people who were making it and the audience they would have been making it for. A group travels from Odo Island to petition for disaster relief from the government, and reports of a massive living creature sighted by the survivors of the hurricane attract the attention of Professor Kyohei Yamane, a paleontologist. He mentions that new species are being discovered every day, like the Yeti in the Himalayas. Toho would release an abominable snowman movie called Half Human in America just a year later, and it would feature virtually the exact same cast and he volunteers to travel to Odo Island to examine the evidence himself. The ship sets off in a surprisingly festive atmosphere given the tragedies occurring, there are streamers everywhere and people cheering them on their way, as Dr. Yamane and his daughter Emiko wave goodbye to a man with an eye patch they name as Dr. Serizawa. Ogata is piloting the vessel, and he does a little brooding about Serizawa's presence that will be explained later. On the island, Dr. Yamane finds large depressions on the ground with traces of radiation and live prehistoric trilobites lingering in them, and he quickly deduces they're the massive footprints of some incalculably huge dinosaur-like animal. He soon proved right when the creature emerges from the ocean on the other side of the island, its head rearing up over the ridge to stare down at the insignificant creatures almost beneath its notice. There have been many different designs for Godzilla over the years, but this is probably one of the most overtly monstrous. It's got lumpy, misshapen features, and the decision to leave the film in black and white rather than shooting color makes it seem almost a pasty gray. Its hands end in wickedly sharp claws rather than the fingers of later versions, and even its teeth look vaguely misaligned. From a production standpoint, it's crude, but the way Honda and Subaraya shoot it give you no doubts as to its vast, physical power. The people flee, leaving the creature to return to the water, and from up on the ridge they see massive footprints matching the ones it left on its earlier visit. Yamane reports his find to the government, incorrectly describing it as a specimen of a 2 million year old dinosaur from the Jurassic rather than a 145 million year old dinosaur from the Jurassic. 
He estimates its height at 165 feet tall. This was turned into 400 feet tall for the American re-release, although really no one was ever especially careful about scale from scene to scene, as different suits and puppets were used to represent the monster. And he suggests it was trapped in a deep-sea cave until released by the H-bomb tests. This doesn't explain the trilobite, which went extinct 250 million years ago, but you may have guessed that hard science isn't this movie's strong suit. The government at first discusses covering up the information, but after one woman in attendance causes a near riot by complaining about unnecessary secrecy, it comes out publicly. The woman is played by Shizuko Higashi, and I love how much force and energy she brings to her very brief performance. Godzilla sinks another dozen or so ships, practically shutting down the sea lanes around Tokyo, and the Japanese self-defense force attempts to kill the monster with depth charges. Japan wasn't allowed a formal military according to the Treaty of San Francisco, but they were allowed a nominal force for the defense of their redrawn borders. The inability of the JSDF to stop Godzilla could be seen as a political commentary on their inefficacy compared to the pre-war navy. Dr. Yamane watches reports of the attack in deep dismay. He's a zoologist and paleontologist with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to study a living prehistoric creature who might also have a unique resistance to radiation, and to find that people just want to blow it up is kind of heartbreaking. Although, to be fair, Godzilla is killing a lot of people. He wipes out a boat full of partygoers. The American version gives this some much-needed context by explaining that folks were relaxing and returning to the ocean after the depth charge attack seemed to have worked, and the government has no idea how to stop the monster. They ask Yamane, who gives the wonderful response, Godzilla was baptized in the fire of the H-bomb and survived. What could kill it now? Which is when we get back to the human interest plot. Because Emiko Yamane is betrothed to Serizawa, but it was all arranged by their parents when they were kids, and she really thinks of him as more of an older brother. She wants to be with Ogata, and when a reporter, played by Sachio Sakai, asks her to arrange an introduction to the famed scientist, Emiko takes it as an opportunity to break off their betrothal and tell him about the man she truly loves. It doesn't quite go as planned. Serizawa politely puts off the reporter, insisting he doesn't have any kind of big breakthroughs in the works, then takes Emiko down to his lab once the reporter has departed to show her the big breakthrough he just lied about. We don't see exactly what it is, only getting a brief look at a small pellet dropped into an aquarium and violently churning the waters, but whatever happens is so terrifying that Emiko recoils in stark horror. She comes home that night almost mute with shock, and confessing that she failed to so much as mention Ogata to Serizawa, and although Ogata is concerned about her behavior, she insists nothing happened. That's when Godzilla enters Tokyo itself for the first time, and we get the scenes that would come to define the entire franchise for generations all over the world. The giant monster emerging from the bay, the soldiers firing uselessly at it, the crushing devastation visited on people and buildings alike, as represented by miniature sets, made from thin wood covered with a mix of plaster and chalk, with explosives planted in them when needed. But this Godzilla movie takes the destruction more seriously than any of the others that followed it. Everyone involved in the making of this movie had survived an actual war, one where Tokyo was the target of an unprecedented bombing campaign that saw no distinction between military and civilian targets. 
There was a lot of conversation in America in the decades following the war about demanding an apology from the Japanese government, who admittedly remained in denial about their role as aggressors for far too long. But the notion that America should apologize for the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was greeted with disdain, and the idea that they should apologize for the firebombing of Tokyo was never even superficially engaged with. Godzilla's attacks in this movie are taken seriously, which I think both shields it from any complaints about being exploitative, and makes it into a deep and heartfelt movie that just happens to have a giant monster in it. The next day, the JSDF comes up with a plan. They're going to string up a network of high-tension power lines across Tokyo Bay, 165 feet tall and flooded with 50,000 volts of electricity, both numbers are much higher in the American recut. This requires a massive evacuation of the surrounding area, and of course, here's me, having spent many a workday scrutinizing aerial photos for high-tension power lines that might reduce property values going, oh man, this is gonna wreck the real estate market. But it's amazing what you can get done in a hurry when a whole city depends on it. The area is evacuated, in the American recut Steve says it's the whole city, which creates a ton of continuity problems later when you see people fleeing Godzilla, and towers fly up with record speed. That evening, as the city waits with bated breath for Godzilla's return, Ogata decides to ask Dr. Yamane for his daughter's hand in marriage but he commits the social faux pas of acknowledging that maybe the 165-foot high monster destroying the city might need to be stopped with lethal force despite its potential value as a research subject. This causes Yamane to fly into a rage and kick Ogata out of his house in an odd little spar of a dropped plot thread from Kayama's original story where Yamane was much more eccentric and flamboyant and tried to sabotage the electrical towers to save Godzilla probably a nod to 1951's The Thing from Another World. It doesn't really matter, though, because Godzilla don't need no help from no man. When he returns, he shrugs off the titanic electrical shocks. The hand you see throwing the switch is that of Honda himself, by the way, a nicely symbolic cameo, before exhaling superheated breath that simply melts the whole line of towers like they were made of wax. Which they were. The crew basically just aimed hair dryers at them from off-screen. It's such a simple effect, but it's so vivid and believable. Godzilla then proceeds to set the entire city on fire with what's come to be known as his atomic breath, and again, this carries the resonance of history to it in a way future Godzilla films would not. Allied firebombings during World War II did apocalyptic damage to Tokyo due to the city's traditional wood and paper construction, killing 100,000 and leaving a further million without shelter. Anyone watching this in Tokyo in 1954 would probably have lived through those raids, and the miniatures depict specific and real locations being wrecked by Godzilla's wrath. Supposedly, Honda and Tsuburaya were questioned by police as they toured the city talking about which buildings they needed to destroy, but I think that story sounds a little too good to be true. A group of reporters filming the devastation become targets themselves, holding their post and continuing to broadcast live even as Godzilla approaches them, and I have to imagine this was the inspiration for Steve Martin's presence in the American recut. And yes, it is impossible for modern audiences to hear Steve Martin and not think of the famous comedian. The monster topples them from the tower they were broadcasting from, killing them all, and I couldn't help thinking of the Fukushima nuclear disaster where employees risked fatal amounts of radioactivity to shut down the plant. 
That kind of stoicism in the face of inescapable death is an ideal I think we all aspire to, and it feels eerie to see it depicted in fiction some fifty years before it was paralleled in life. Godzilla eventually returns to the ocean, wrecking a few bridges on his way out in what appears to be an act of spite. I've heard people say that he's acting out because of the bright flashing lights and loud noises, and he's really just an animal like any other, but the way he wrecks that final bridge is very much the cat joke about fuck this thing in particular, and he shrugs off a final attempt to bring him down with a squadron of jets equipped with missiles. The next day sees a horrified city tending its wounded and burying its dead. Interestingly, the American recut starts here, turning most of the movie into an extended flashback. And after seeing all the devastation, Emiko decides to break her vow to Serizawa and tell Ogata what she saw two days ago. It turns out that the discovery Serizawa's been so secretive about is the Oxygen Destroyer, a chemical compound that can destroy the oxygen in water, presumably the bubbles are free hydrogen escaping, and as a side effect, destroy any living thing in that water by liquefying its flesh. Presumably the effect of the Oxygen Destroyer works on any water within the body, and since living beings are mostly water, it does a lot of collateral damage on its way through. The bones, being almost entirely calcium, survive. Not that there's a lot of hard science behind this thing, we certainly never see the water levels going down despite being told that all the oxygen in the water is being destroyed, but it's fun to speculate on the exact mechanism for what we see on screen. Serizawa is horrified by his own discovery, refusing to tell anyone but Emiko until he can find some kind of non-lethal application for the technology, and even swearing to kill himself and destroy his own notes rather than let something so apocalyptic out into the world. But Emiko's smart enough to put two and two together and come up with, let's use this to kill Godzilla. She and Ogata go to visit Serizawa, who hilariously responds to Ogata's questions with, what oxygen destroyer? Like, dude, if he knows what it's called, he knows you made it. Emiko confesses she told Ogata about it, and there's a lot of relationship subtext to the subsequent fight, because Serizawa can see the chemistry between the other two and probably can't help wondering if she would have told anyone else what she told Ogata. Serizawa tries to destroy his notes, Ogata tries to stop him, and the two of them get into a struggle that ends with Ogata's head bleeding from a shallow but nasty looking gash. That's enough to shake Serizawa out of his anger. As a pacifist, he's clearly shocked by his own capacity for violence under the right circumstances, but he nonetheless refuses to use his weapon even to stop a literal monster. He's worried that if he demonstrates the oxygen destroyer to the world, he'll be hounded into giving it up to the government to be studied and replicated, and once the secret is out, there's no way other governments won't get a hold of it. The parallels with nuclear weaponry aren't even subtext, they're actual text. Serizawa repeatedly compares to the situation to what happened with the atomic bomb. Japan was strongly anti-nuke at the time, an entirely unsurprising stance given its use on their civilian population during wartime and the subsequent deaths of civilians due to peacetime nuclear testing, and this is a movie that is going to take the strong stance that anything that devastating should simply be forbidden knowledge. In reality, science doesn't work that way. Almost every truly great scientific discovery emerges from other discoveries being made by other scientists of the same era. Darwin's theory of natural selection was only a few steps ahead of a number of other thinkers of his day, and the Wright brothers might not even be the first people to develop powered flight. 
Even Einstein and Newton, the twin fathers of modern physics, develop their ideas in correspondence with equally brilliant contemporaries, and there are disputes regarding the priority of their discoveries. If Sarazawa had an oxygen destroyer, you can bet someone else wasn't far behind on the same line of research. But this is fiction, and in fiction a single brilliant mind often leaps centuries ahead of their contemporaries. Serizawa is the only person who could come up with the oxygen destroyer, and he knows he's the gatekeeper of this dangerous knowledge. When he sees on television a group of children singing a prayer of peace, though, he decides to make one last batch of the concoction to destroy Godzilla forever, then destroy all of his notes so no one can make any more. And it's kind of surprising that Ogata and Emiko don't see what's about to happen coming, given that he also mentions that destroying the notes won't be enough because he retains the knowledge himself. But we'll get to that in a moment. Ogata and Serizawa go out on a ship to Tokyo Bay, where experts use Geiger counters to locate Godzilla beneath the water. Serizawa wants to head down alone, but Ogata refuses to hear of it. He's the only skilled diver between the two of them, and he knows Serizawa wouldn't survive alone. Actor Akihiko Hirata's facial expression here almost playfully betrays his character's true intentions. The two men go together in diving suits. It's weird to think this came out the same year as Creature from the Black Lagoon, which couldn't have been more scuba crazy, and they're both wearing these old-fashioned bulky hose-fed diving suits, to plant a container with the oxygen destroyer inside it right next to the giant monster. And in case you missed the symbolism here, it even looks like a simplified drawing of an atom bomb. But when Ogata releases his ballast to go back up, he discovers that Serizawa has cut the tether between the two of them. Over the radio, the scientist tells a rapidly ascending Ogata he hopes the couple will be happy before releasing the oxygen destroyer and cutting his own suit open to ensure he and his discovery will perish with Godzilla. The water thrashes with bubbles as the giant monster is rapidly reduced to a skeleton on the ocean floor, and the boat's crew gives a reverent salute to the fallen hero Serizawa. But the final words go to Yamane, who worries that further atomic testing might awaken another one of the beasts. And the next one won't be so easily stopped. Which turns out to be absolutely right, and maybe we'll even get to that someday if the DVD gods are willing. And, um, yes, a Criterion Collection 50% off flash sale does count as half price for the purposes of this podcast, not that I'm looking at the Showa collection right now and drooling. But this Godzilla, the first of his lineage and the beast that spawned the legend, is dead. And honestly, we'll never see his like again. The character goes through a number of transformations over the decades, becoming a champion of Japan and a father himself, but we'll never get another film that delivers this stark, apocalyptic level of dread and mayhem. Maybe because we need the towering threat he represents to be something other than purely awful simply in order to stay sane. In the real world, after all, there's no way to get rid of nuclear paranoia just by pressing a single button. And will I hang on to this movie? Oh, absolutely. I was lucky enough to find the Criterion edition of Godzilla, and those are always worth keeping wherever I find one. And it really is one of those groundbreaking films, no pun intended, that's worth keeping around as a historical text, if nothing else. Godzilla has its own ancestors, like the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, but it's tremendously influential in ways large and small, and I'm glad I've got it to refer back to on occasion. And if you want to talk about influential monster movies, nuclear paranoia, 
or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watchlist on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, we've still got one final Evil Dead movie to get to, and luckily it's new enough and successful enough that I feel like I can fit it in during spooky season. So let's go to a different cabin in the woods this time, and promptly depart it for downtown LA as we tackle 2023's Evil Dead Rise. See you then.